You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. For 14 years, the nationally recognized Great Plains Theater Conference, presented by Metropolitan Community College, has offered significant opportunities for new and emerging playwrights to learn and grow, no matter the level of experience in theater. Although the conference focus is primarily on playwriting, the Great Plains Theater Conference also benefits performers, designers, directors, technicians, and scholars. Artists connect with one another in a supportive and encouraging environment, critique one another's work, begin to develop work together, form future creative alliances, and share vital contacts and resources, both regionally and nationally. Relationships cultivated at Great Plains Theater Conference continue year-round through social media, planned events, and other avenues of creativity and collaboration. The Great Plains Theater Conference provides opportunities for participants to interact with and have their work seen by a host of national theater professionals and scholars, theater workshops, luncheon panels, and daily play lab readings comprise the foundation of the conference. The Playfest Evening Festival presents an opportunity for playwrights, participants, and the general public to enjoy featured work by many of the Great Plains Theater Conference guest artists. On Monday, May 27, 2019, the Great Plains Theater Conference hosted an event entitled Direct Address, Assorted Stories of Teachers. As Scott Working, the coordinator of the event, said, As we honor the work of Maria Irene Fornes, who was such an inspiring mentor to so many playwrights, we have asked a few selected guests to share a story about a great teacher or mentor from their past. Maybe I'll come a little closer and do that. This, this is actually... Is this, how are the levels on this? We don't even know. It feels weird holding it because I can't tell if I'm being at um, Anyway, you guys, this is a, a direct address. This is kind of a night of just kind of some basic storytelling. I've uh, reached out to a few um, guests um, to talk a few minutes about mentors because uh, Maria Fornes was such a great teacher to a lot of people. A lot of people in this room actually uh, studied with her. Um, so that just kind of got me thinking about maybe people bringing those stories. Last year, uh, we had some people share stories about Omaha, uh, people, former Omahans and present Omahans and people that have visited. And uh, it was just kind of a nice icebreaker evening. Um, The tradition kind of goes to uh, locally, uh, Kevin would host uh, uh, stories of O. Uh, in his house before he had a child to to worry about all these adults descending and coming in. Um, And he would usually make a nice roast of some kind and then we would bring in a side dish based on uh, either our birth month or uh, the first letter in our last name. Um, 
And uh, yeah, he would just give us a topic to kind of start spinning and uh, we would just share for a little bit. We'd eat and then talk and go up. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun, kind of in the tradition of, you know, the moth hour and everything like that. Um, and uh, we've asked uh, Dana Schweiger to uh, put this on her podcast. So she's going to record this. So you'll be able to find these stories forever and ever. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think uh, just to kind of get things started, uh, when I think of mentors myself, it was just one person absolutely comes to mind. I was fortunate enough to have Eric N. Um, usher me into and out of grad school at the University of Iowa. He taught for a semester, my first semester and my last semester. And he is, he's the Dalai Lama of American playwriting. He's the most generous, kind-hearted, um, intelligent, funniest human beings on the planet. He, and he's all about giving. He, that was one of the, his big lessons was you got to give it away. Um, his specialty is in healing. He goes out of his way to write plays for people that have uh, suffered tragedies all over the country, all over the world. Um, regular trips to Rwanda to try to understand what happened there. Uh, Virginia Tech. Um, and he was just a great mentor and, uh, and a friend and uh, someone to aspire to. And, and just one of the most brilliant minds ever, too. I mean, he could, you know, quote Basho, and uh, the Ramones and uh, Sartre in the same note, and you would know exactly what he was talking about. You would just feel it. Um, and uh, I guess my story is more of an illustration. I, uh, I ended up going back to grad school, just because I like grad school, um, for uh, creative nonfiction here in Omaha. And uh, I just kind of started taking classes, and it was, I was having a good time. And I, when I decided to go ahead and just get the degree, I had to take like a research methods class, which it's not very creative, research methods and annotated bibliographies and all that stuff. But, but what I tell my students uh, now is like when they're working on a paper, they should either write about someone or something that they know well, that they can share, that they're a semi-expert in, or something that they want to learn about. So for my big paper, I chose, I chose Eric. Um, and it was great to kind of explore uh, specifically his work, uh, Maria Cazito, which was directly about Rwanda. Um, and I, you know, did a bunch of research about it. I found articles, reviews, um, some stuff that he wrote about it himself, um, and just really immersed myself in it. And uh, he's amazing at colliding images to make a third, more impressive image. Like in that, I mean, there's uh, ringing of. Uh, blood-drenched towels into milk, or a chain coming out of a, a pitcher of milk at the end, or a nun with a knife. He takes two images and smashes them together that creates an even more powerful final image. And so that's what I was working about, uh, multivocality and dialogism um, in dramaturgy. And my professor, kept basically accusing me of being a fanboy, basically. It's like, it's like, this isn't analytical. This is just descriptive. And it's like, you need to find something that you could dig into, you know, and, and call him to task. And I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, and, you know, my first draft, you know, he, 
I got an 87 on my first draft and stuff, but, uh, um, but I just, I stuck to my guns and I really broke down what he did um, that is so effective and individual to him. And uh, I ended up just turning in the paper that I wanted to and he ended up, he did give me an A finally for the class. So I know, thank you. Um, no, it's, it's not necessary, but in fact, I, my whole year in grad school, my whole year in grad school, that, that, this just feels weird. That just feels weird. Yeah, I, we don't need this one. Thank you. So, yeah, my, my whole career in grad school, I only got one B, and uh, it was at Iowa. Eric Forsyth gave me a B in collaboration, but, <laughs> but it's just because I was working with a bunch of losers. But, uh, no, it was... Yeah, I still don't know why we got a B. Every other team got an A. It's, all right, well, that's another story entirely. But um, so uh, that's Eric, and a lot of you know him, and it's just kind of an illustration uh, to show him. He's been here several times, and, and we love it when he comes. His, he's, his notes are insightful and mind-blowing and generous all, all together. Um, so, so he's mine. So let's go ahead and start hearing from some of you guys. We've got uh, about eight speakers coming. Uh, and we'll just kind of pass the mic. I'll just kind of call them up one by one. Um, and Emmanuel, you want to start things off? Thanks for part. Can I say it? Yeah, you can say it. Hi. Um, I've met most of you. My name is Emmanuel. Hello. Um, so, oh. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> it's okay. I can I can scream. It's funny. Oh, you try. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Hello. Okay. So um sure um so, <laughs> um so I don't really have much of a story. I'm just gonna talk about this person. Um so I was a STEM major in college, <laughs> and um I kept trying to like I started getting into theater really um, in the second half of high school. So um, when I got to college, I like tried to participate in it more. And it seems like, and I like did do things, but I just wasn't really getting what I wanted. Um, and it seems like every time I like tried to like get into theater or just do something, theater would tell me no. <laughs> and um, I don't even think it was necessarily like demographically but like more to do with like my tastes and like the kind of work that I did and the kind of work I was interested in watching and just like me <laughs> like I just felt like there was something wrong with me that made me just feel like I like you just can't have a career in theater you can't be a successful theater artist for some reason something's just wrong with you and you can't do that um, and then uh, senior year um, the fall semester senior year, I took a directing class because I directed uh, in college. I took a directing class with this teacher. And um, again, like I was feeling like, why are you still like doing theater stuff? Like give it up, give it up. But there was this little voice saying, no, keep doing it, keep doing it. I was just like, okay. Um, so yeah, and I just, like it definitely made me a better director, but just like, I don't know, it's just like something about her. Um, 
she just like gave me a lot of hope um, and she expressed a lot of faith in me um, as an artist that I don't think I'd ever gotten from anyone ever before. Um, certainly not at college, maybe like not even in my whole life. Um, and then I, she had an acting class the next semester, um, so I took that as well. And um, yeah, uh, we, we still talk. Um, she, she gave me a lot of faith in myself as a writer specifically. Um, and I, I probably would have like returned to writing eventually, um, but I definitely wouldn't be right here right now without her um, and without my experience um, just like communicating with her. Um, in our directing class, uh, she, I, I just really learned because I kind of like tend to like rush a lot and like have tunnel vision. Um, but I learned from her to like take some time, take some moments to just slow down and like appreciate everything that's around you and like observe everything that's around you. Um, oh, her, her name is Tony Dorfman, by the way. <laughs> like maybe, yeah, she knows everyone. Like, so yeah, I knew someone in here would know her. Um, but yeah, like I've gotten like opportunities. I've gotten to meet people because of her. She's just like one of my favorite people in the entire universe. And um, yeah, she just really, um, and like I still have those times where I just feel like I should really stop doing this, just like give up, like this is way too frustrating, it's not worth it. Um, like even as recently as Saturday night. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but like, like that voice in my head that says no, keep going, like she made it a lot louder. So um, I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful for her. I'm done. <laughs> Brought to you by Kate Friesen. We'll put that one here, and then they can use this one. There you go. Professional problem solver. Okay. Come back up. Do it again. Okay. 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 Do you want to come on up? It's the summer of 2012, and I'm walking hand in hand with my mentor uh, in a psych ward. And my only job in that moment is to keep walking until we get to a room that is going to be her room and then I'm going to let go of her hand and leave her there. So how did we get there? So a few months earlier, it's spring of 2012, and I'm at home and my phone buzzes. And I look down and it's a text message from my mentor. Now I haven't talked to her in a couple years. We sort of, you know, go in and out of touch. But this is a woman who I first met when I was 19 years old, and I was a misplaced freshman at the University of Chicago, 
which for those of you who know that school is like renowned for being anti-creative. It's like only intellectual. And I had decided like I was done with theater and I was only going to be intellectual. And so I went there, which was a mistake. Um, but Kim was my advisor there. And she was also pretty young at the time. She was probably in her early 30s. And she was a very cool advisor because she was a theater person. And she had this flaming red hair and she would leave me messages in my student mailbox like congratulations on your on your winter quarter here's wishing you a, a vibrant luscious spring and things like that and um, I loved her and I just wanted to be around her all the time she was like this spot of color in a colorless landscape and um, she cha totally changed the way I thought about theater and she introduced me to Grotowski and theater anthropology, and she had this mystical love of plays and of the worlds and the words that playwrights created. And I ended up dropping out of the UFC, but we stayed in touch and we got closer and I would babysit for her kid and, and she would advise me on romances and then when I left Chicago I would come back to assistant director and I would live at her house when I did that. So I was, I was getting like a deep education from Kim not only how to be a director in um, the rehearsal room but also just how to be an artist in everyday life. Um, when, I, when I really started directing on my own, my, my first tactic was just to mimic her, totally. And I remember I would always like put on really bright lipstick right before I started rehearsal because she always said lipstick made her think better. So I would do that too. Um, but watching her work was a really extraordinary thing because she had this way of directing and of teaching and of being with the person or the student, the actor, the moment that was like this electrified contact with the person that she was engaging with or the moment that she was engaging with. And she didn't judge and she never said no. She was just curious in this intense way and she led by this curiosity. She sort of led by following. But she always you know, had an end game in mind. She had a vision, but somehow it was um, like, she like fused her soul with the soul of the moment. It was like the play became her lover in sort of the roomy sense. And it was kind of this mystic, mystic way of being with things. And she made moments of extraordinary, like pulsing beauty. Um, and uh, so that's Kim. And the last I knew, she was teaching at UCSD. She was on the tenure track there, and we had kind of drifted apart. But that's who this text message was from. And I was like, oh my god, that's great. It's Kim. And what the text message said was, can you come wedding Jim Jarmusch, May 15th, Molokai? So for those of you who don't know who Jim Jarmusch is, he's this like brilliant bonkers movie director. He's a, he um, makes works that are strange and gorgeous and specific and he has this like big hair and glasses and he's sort of fascinating and weird and knowing Kim, I could actually kind of totally see them getting together. Like I wouldn't put it past her to have a romance and get married to Jim Jarmusch and so I was like, are you, 
are you getting married? And, um, and she didn't text back. And so I was like, well, I mean, maybe she is getting married to Jim Jarmusch. I don't know. But if I'm going to go to that wedding, I need a little more information. <laughs> so I'm just going to hang tight and see what happens. So a few weeks later, uh, my phone buzzed again. And it was my friend Melissa, who is also one of Kim's mentees. And I was like, hey, Melissa, I got this text message from Kim. Is she getting married to Jim Jarmusch? And Melissa said, Kim's in trouble. And so it turns out that Kim was experiencing some kind of break that for the past maybe almost a year, she had been starting to behave like really chaotically and, and very strangely in the rehearsal room and also in her classrooms. And she was behaving so chaotically that um, they had put her on like a forced leave from school and she was in danger of losing her job. And she had gone to Hawaii, which is where Molokai is. And she had been there, and nobody quite knew what was going on. But a friend had gone to kind of bring her back from Hawaii. And she was back in San Diego. But she was convinced that another friend was getting on a private plane and coming to take her to some spa. And then she disappeared for 24 hours and showed up at a colleague's house with a, in a taxi cab that had like a $500 taxi fare. And she was refusing to go back to her own house. And nobody knew quite what was going on, but everybody thought that the best thing to do would be to get Kim back to her father's house in Ohio. And she was like in her mid-50s at this point. And, um, and Melissa said, you're the person who needs to do that. And I, I was thinking, you know, Kim is one of the most important people in the world to me. Of course, I will do anything for her, but I haven't seen her in years. Like, we barely talked. Am I really the right person to go do this? And Melissa said, you are absolutely the right person. You need to fly to San Diego, convince her that she needs to go back to her dad's house in Ohio. Meanwhile, I'm going to find an interventionist who can convince her that she needs help, to, that she needs to go someplace and get help. And I was like, OK, when should I do this? And Melissa was like, tomorrow. Actually, I think she said today. But then she was like, OK, tomorrow. And so Kim's dad paid for a plane ticket. And, um, and when I called Kim on the phone to tell her that I was, wanted to come visit her, she was totally delighted to hear from me. And I was totally delighted to hear her voice. And when I pulled up to the place she was staying in San Diego and saw her, it was wonderful. It was her. And she looked like a little more ragged than usual. Like she looked kind of rough. and, but. Um, it was just like it always was. And we sat on the grass and ate oranges and talked about life and God and creativity and art and relationships. And it was amazing. And I was like, Kim is totally fine. What is the problem here? Like, maybe she's a little more elevated than usual. Like, maybe she's a little heightened or even more in touch with what's happening. But. Um, I remember calling her dad that night and reassuring him that like Kim's totally okay. She's just like maybe a little more Kim-like than usual. Um, and then things um, began to get a little strange. And what I realized is that the boundary that usually separates uh, reality from uh, or like what's actual from what's not really actual just had totally disappeared for her. 
And what was normally her strength, which was to kind of move into this mystical, more than real, emotional, magical place to, to sort of do her art from and meet people at had become a liability because she was stuck there and she couldn't get back. And like Jim Jarmusch kept playing tricks on her and the leaves that fell off the trees and landed on the driveway were these gates that we had to walk through in really specific ways. And um, at first what had seemed kind of wonderful to me with like an extra sparkle um, started to get a little terrifying and out of control. And I did eventually convince her that we needed to go to her dad's house. And I, there's one image burned in my mind from the night before we were getting on the plane. And a friend had put us up in a very fancy hotel as like a treat to, before we were flying out. And um, I have this image of Kim crouched by, the, by a brick wall um, in a courtyard of this fancy hotel and she was like sobbing, kind of screaming and she was uh, terrified of something, I didn't know what and she was in tremendous physical pain and the guests were walking by like looking really alarmed and freaked out and judgmental and Kim wouldn't let me touch her, she wouldn't let me get her to our room. So this was my mentor. Um, people always talk about how hard that relationship is, the mentor-mentee relationship, because it starts in these roles, and then you just can't sustain those roles. And eventually, the mentor will topple off their pedestal, or the mentee will kind of grow in a different direction, and the need will lessen, and people will disappoint each other. And Kim and I had gone through our share of really hard moments, but we had already always made it through. So would we make it through this? Now, Kim calls that time the fugue, that time, that period of months when her brain wasn't able to parse out reality in a rational way. We found out later that it had, was caused by an overprescription of Percocet that she had been given after she had had a surgery. And so slowly and steadily over about a year, the, the functioning of the dendrites in her brain had gotten screwed up and that was what was causing her to go like too far into this part of herself. But at the time we didn't know that. All we knew is that Kim had become like unlaced in this very um, profound way. And now that we had seen her so unlaced, would we ever be able to see her laced up again? Would we ever be able to see her as a leader or put her in a leadership position or look to her for guidance or for mentorship? And for me, that was never really the question at the time. Like, the fugue didn't topple Kim off of her pedestal for me. It expanded my sense of who she was and what she was capable of. And it made me think a lot about the levels of reality we function in every day and what else exists and what's required of us. But it did really scare me. And, um, and as she got better, it did take me a long time to trust that she could make her own decisions for herself and that I could go from leading to being led again, or that I could be vulnerable instead of strong. Um, 
but the point that I want to make, the big point that I want to make with this story is that it was the lessons that I learned watching Kim in the classroom and in the rehearsal room directing. It was watching her stay in that curiosity-based, really alive contact with the person and the moment. It was watching her lead with curiosity and not judge. It was watching her keep her eye on the big picture while allowing for all kinds of movement and discovery in the moment that allowed me to stay with her during the fugue. Like essentially Kim taught me how to be with her in that time and like a good director, I was able to stay in contact with her without losing sight of the end game and the goal and where I needed to get her. I could do what I did with her because of how she taught me how to be a director. So 22 years after I first walked into Kim's office and like thought she was the most amazing person I'd ever met, I walked with her into the psych ward and um, what the interventionist swore was like a really nice place to rest. Um, and I left her there. I don't know whether that was a betrayal of her to do that. Did I hurt her worse or did I help by being the pivot person and getting her there? Um, I don't, I don't, none of us really know. I don't think Kim really knows. But what I do know is that a few years ago when I was invited to UCSD where Kim was still on faculty to direct a show, you can be damn sure that when I couldn't figure out how to make a scene work in the play I was directing, it was Kim that I wanted in my rehearsal room to help me discover it. And when I had a spare couple hours, just like I did when I was 19, I would make a beeline straight for her office so I could sit and hang out and talk. And maybe best of all, whenever I could, I would follow Kim into her classroom so I could sit once again and watch her and learn. Thank you. project my voice as well or hi okay <laughs> hi everyone um, for those of you who don't know me my name is Itohan uh, I'm one of the designers in the designer wing uh, I do lighting design that's my sort of profession that's not my sort of profession it is my profession um, and uh, yeah I was kind of racking in my brain as to like who to speak about I feel like for for me in particular I have many mentors. There's not just one specific person that I feel, you know, strongly attached to. And I think, I think that person was necessary at the time that I needed them to be there in my life. Um, so this one woman, um, her name was Elodie Lawton. I was in undergrad school. This was like before I, uh, before it clicked in my brain that I wanted to do lighting. It was just like, you know, I. I, I was always in theater as a kid. I, I grew up in New York, so, you know, <laughs> Broadway, 42nd Street was just around the corner. Not really, but, um, <laughs> to, you know, something New Yorkers say, I guess. <laughs> um, so I grew up in theater, but I remember sort of racking my brain around 
at the end of high school trying to figure out what I would do. And then I, I was like, well, I'm just going to do sound. I love sound. Let's do sound engineering. Um, and I entered into this school in the city uh, to do sound. And there was this amazing sound enthusiast woman, French woman named Elodie Lawton at the time, uh, who was spectacular, honestly. She was, I call her a sound enthusiast because she wasn't just a person that, you know, does sound. She lived it, she breathed it, and she, she was ev everything about her, like, just radiated sound. And I, I felt like I was <clears throat> in some ways inspired by that that essence of her that at the time I had no idea what what it was but I was it it drew me in I was very interested in trying to figure out like well how can I get this um, so I was like that eager college student wide-eyed very um, with fi fire in me still very much so uh, that kind of trailed her until she gave me like a position anything I was like I'll do anything please just like let me be in your your aura let me be in your presence and uh, I remember she, she um, we did a lot of projects and she was very friendly. Um, not many people do this, but like she allowed me into her home. It was a, I was her student, so that was a good thing. But um, <laughs> she let me into her home where it was just like this very tall bed, but she didn't have that like, the space in the apartments in New York are quite small, so just imagine she had this sort of six foot tall bed that she had to climb up over, and then underneath that bed was just her piano and you know, everything about, like she was very much a sound enthusiast and didn't really care too much about, you know, the f being a human, I suppose, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's a bit strong to say. Um, but uh, yeah, and I remember I followed her around and like we, she had worked on this opera uh, which would be what I, what I didn't know at the time, but um, it would be her last piece of work that she would ever work on. Um, and I remember us just going to this church in Brooklyn and recording, like I was there recording uh, these choir singers singing these amazing songs that I would then sort of like clean and stitch together in this sort of um, digital audio workstation, workspace uh, program. And it was a really amazing time for me because I was a young kid who was very much interested in theater, but I didn't know, and I, I mean, I guess I thought I knew what my, my niche was and I thought it was sound. And I remember many times just trailing around the city, helping Elodie, uh, she would, she, I feel like she knew that I wasn't gonna be in sound. I feel like she, she knew that that wasn't where my passion was and she knew that I needed time to figure that out. And she gave me that space to figure it out by sort of allowing me to trail behind her and see how she is and how she interacts with people that she works with and the work that she herself creates. And in that, she, she taught me a lot about passion and um, being creative and giving space to people to sort of voice their opinions and their sort of their passions about the work that they produce. Yeah. Um, uh, and I worked with her on that opera for a few months. And I, I went, the college that I had gone to, we have to take a few courses in everything. So I had to ta I take, I had taken a course in lighting design. Uh, and I found it, guys. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> um, 
but like but like you were saying about the sort of connection that you have to sort of try to to to, to maintain it was really hard for me at the time i'm I really love people, but it's hard for me to keep the connection. I think that's just the flaw in my character that I'm going to sort out. Um, but it was hard for me to keep connection with her with everything that I was doing at the time. And I remember uh, one, one day I, I had this urge to message her. So I emailed her and said, hey, you know, how'd the opera go? And how is everything? And weeks went by. And she's very, she's very much like attached to her phone. So you'd know she would email you instantaneously. But weeks went by. and. You know, then LinkedIn was sort of like the thing. So I added her on LinkedIn and I was like, oh, okay, I wonder how her life is now. Um, and then uh, a few months had passed and uh, I was taking a course in scenic design. And one of my professors at the time had blurted out, you know, oh, you know, Elodie. Sorry. <laughs> They had blurted at the time that Elodie was gone and that she passed away during that opera that we had worked on. And I remember, I'm sorry guys, it's just, sorry. Um, I remember it being really hard for me to um, kind of come to terms with what that, that meant. You know, I'm not, I'm not able to go on the city, go to the, take the B train to Second Avenue to her apartment with her ridiculously tall bed uh, and talk about sound and what other project we were gonna work on. And it was, it was really hard for me to, to grasp that because I'm not too good with loss and we had built this connection. But um, her words kind of, I always am reminded of her in everything that I do, and yeah, I'm sorry. That's, that was Elodie. She was a very close person to my heart, and I was happy that I was able to work on something that she also uh, felt very dear to her before she had passed, so thanks. <laughs> Where would you like to be? I'm going to sit this one, but I'm going to pull this little chair for a little Hello, everyone. Can you all hear me? So uh, my name is Khalid. I'm one of the dramaturgs here for this week. Um, thank you. I am. Um, I'm gonna. So I'm gonna talk about one of my mentors today. I actually wrote something. Well, I wrote a piece for Black Mask uh, magazine uh, about him, and so I'm gonna read a short excerpt from that. But just to give you a little context, so I'm gonna talk about my mentor. His name was. Uh, Dr. Paul Bryant Jackson. Um, he was a professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, um, and where I got my master's. And we went, and I went there in 2000, 2001. When did I go there? I forgot. Anyway, um, and we became a mentor of mine, and we were very, 
very close to the point where people said, is that, like, folks would, would come up to me and say, is that your dad? Is that your dad? <laughs> because we actually did look alike, <laughs> look alike a little bit. Um, Dr. Jackson and I talked every single day since graduating from Miami, Ohio in graduate school. I graduated in 2009 from there, and we talked every single day. He got me through, I, it was because of him that I began to study black feminist theater. Um, I did my master's thesis on Pearl Clegg. I did my dissertation on Glenda Dickerson. You know, uh, black women playwrights is my specialty, and it's because of him. And he coached me through life lessons and in addition to my professional uh, work. And he coached me through my negotiations phase when I got my first full-time tenure-track position at Columbia College, where I am now. Coached me every day, we went through stuff, now, now say this, now write this, now ask for this. Um, I moved to Chicago August 1st to accept, when I accepted the position, and he died eight days later. So it's been a rough journey. So I'm just gonna read a little bit. On August 8, 2018, scholar, director, pedagogue, and mentor to many, Dr. Paul Bryant Jackson Jr. took his place to sit among the ancestors. While his health had been declining for some time, Dr. Jackson's passing nonetheless became as a devastating shock to all who knew him. Ironically, his death was followed by the perhaps more foreseeable passing of the legendary Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. In their own distinct ways, both Dr. Jackson and Miss Franklin have contributed to the advancement of black art. Aretha Franklin's lifelong career charted new territories as she transgressed racial and gender, boundary, gender barriers, thus establishing herself as a musical icon and cultural activist committed to using her art to capture the trials and triumphs of the black community. For his part, Dr. Jackson's work as a scholar artist centered the black experience with special attention paid to those who found themselves on the margins with regards to racial, sexual, and gendered identities. It is within this tribute that I aim to pay homage to someone I consider a marvel of black art and liberation. Earning a bachelor's in theater from Dartmouth College, a master's in playwriting from the University of Cincinnati, and a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he studied under pioneering black woman theater scholar, Dr. Esther Merle Jackson, and a certificate of dramaturgy from the University of Amsterdam, Dr. Jackson started his lifelong career as an inspiring teacher in the mid-1980s when he began teaching theater to middle school students at the University of Chicago laboratory schools. In 1986, after several years at the lab school, he began a new journey as professor of drama, department chair, and co-designer of the African Diaspora and World Seminar Program at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. Spelman College had a major impact on Dr. Jackson, both academically and artistically. It was at Spelman that he began to embrace black feminism as he encountered the writings of cultural critic Bell Hooks, the mentorship of Spelman's first African-American woman president, Dr. Janetta B. Cole, and the colleagueship of Beverly Guy Sheftal, Glenda Dickerson, and Joan McCarty, among others. 
Dr. Jackson often declared that his commitment to black feminist theater was in due part to the mentorship he received from his colleagues, as well as pioneering black women theater artists, such as Vinette Carroll, the first black woman to direct on Broadway, and Glenda Dickerson, the second black woman to direct on Broadway. Dr. Jackson's commitment to black feminist theater scholarship was further exemplified when he co-edited with Lois Overbeck, Intersecting Boundaries, The Theater of Adrian Kennedy, the first book-length study on playwright Adrian Kennedy that included essays by leading scholars who helped shape feminist studies, as well as feminist theater theory and criticism, such as Bell Hooks, Margaret B. Wilkerson, Jeannie Forte, and Ellen Diamond. Leaving Spelman College in 1998, Dr. Jackson returned to his to his hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio to join the theater faculty at Miami University nearby in Oxford. Alongside his duties as professor, Dr. Jackson served as department chair, director of graduate studies, an affiliate professor of black world studies and women's gender and sexuality studies, as well as the director of several productions, which is a footnote that further illustrates his commitment to African-American theater in general and black feminist theater in particular. Productions directed by Dr. Jackson include A Raisin in the Sun and The Drinking Gourd by Lorraine Hansberry, Bourbon at the Board by Pearl Clegg, Venus by Susan Murray Parks, The Ohio State Murders by Adrian Kennedy, A View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller, and The Wiz, which would be his last production by Charlie Smalls and William F. Brown. Dr. Jackson embodied a pedagogy of inclusion that was evident in his teaching, directing, scholarship, and mentorship. He created a culture within his classrooms, as well as in rehearsals, wherein all his students felt seen, heard, and valued, regardless of race, class, sexuality, gender, or beliefs. Make no mistake about it, Dr. Jackson fervently challenged his students to think, write, and create beyond their comfort zones. However, he did so in a way that was inviting as well as invigorating. Students who were fortunate to learn from Dr. Jackson always concluded a semester feeling intellectually, artistically, and spiritually galvanized. Dr. Jackson's mentorship extended beyond the walls of the schools where he taught as graduate students and junior faculty from various institutions sought advice from him. In fact, he was known to host one-on-one -on -one meetings and commemorative, ga commemorative gatherings during the annual conferences of the Association of Theater and Higher Education and the Black Theater Network. Now, of course, I wrote in this essay, commemorative gatherings. Oh, they were parties. <laughs> Dr. Jackson continued to attend these national conferences after his retirement and organized panels and roundtables that highlighted emerging scholars and new scholarship pertaining to black theater. Some of Dr. Jackson's greatest contributions to black theater scholarship, in addition to his own publications, publications is when he served as editor for Black Stream, a publication of Athens Black Theater Association, and as founding editor of Continuum, the Journal of African Diaspora Drama, Theater, and Performance, the online journal of BTN. Dr. Jackson never wavered in his role as a pedagogue, mentor, and advocate. Just a day or so before his passing, he and I spoke about my engagement on Athol, my speaking engagement on Athol Fugard at the American Players Theater in Spring Green, Wisconsin in early August. Before he hung up the telephone, marking the last time we would ever speak, Dr. Jackson counseled in his own cheerful way. 
You are in the big leagues now. Your job is to read them and teach them. Dr. Jackson's memorial took place August 24th, 2018 at St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church in Atlanta, Georgia. In addition to his family and close friends, those in attendance were a host of theater artists and scholars, including Daniel Banks, Anne Elizabeth Armstrong, Willa Taylor, Cheryl Johnson, Yvonne Singh, and Donna Harper, some of the names you may know. Professor of Musicology and musician Tammy Kernodal brought the black gospel tradition and honored her friend with May the Work I've Done Speak for Me and a soul-staring rendition of Precious Lord Take My Hand. Dr. Jackson's partner, Jim, of 41 years, asked me to deliver a eulogy. Following is a brief excerpt. We lost a rock. We lost our teacher, our director, our advisor, our mentor, our colleague, our friend. Since his, since his passing, I've been replaying some of his jovial expressions. Hey, fabulous. Hey, wonderful. Be brilliant. Be great. I'm confident in saying that my, my load has been lightened, both professionally and personally, because of his wisdom, guidance, and prayers. Doc, we know your body was weary, you've done your best, and you've earned your rest. It's time for your curtain call, as you are now center stage, ready to take your final bow. The cue has been given, and the lights are fading to black. And as the curtain closes on Paul Jackson's final act, let us collectively say, Ashe. As the service concluded, we processed to the Memorial Gardens, located outside of St. Bartholomew, and proceeded to place Dr. Jackson's ashes into his final resting place. We said our farewells, we collectively embraced, and wiped each other's tears. As the pastor offered a final prayer, the sun shone brightly over us. I don't think anyone noticed. I looked up towards the sky and whispered to myself, he's an ancestor. He's smiling, he's happy, he's at peace. He's letting us know that he's an ancestor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, see, Laura, you wanna come on down? Yeah, what do you wanna do? Back to the speaker boys style? No. Oh. <laughs> All right, so this is the room. That's Dana, right? Yep. Okay, I think I'm going to stand. Okay. All right, hi. Hi. So, uh, who's seen the movie Eighth Grade? Anybody? Okay, that girl was so much more actualized than I was in Eighth Grade. <laughs> like, she, she actually knew how to articulate her thoughts. She had communication vehicle and she didn't walk into walls like I did um, but in eighth grade it's we all know it's a struggle but um, it is eighth grade and I have two friends and I think the only thing that I know that I'm good at is at least I'm smart and I have that going for me um, so I'm making it through eighth grade okay. I haven't learned a lot of the, the ways to cope, but that's gonna come. Um, and I had this class that I had to take, and, and in those days, in junior high, the girls took home economics and the boys took shop. And this wasn't like the, 
the, the, the better designed home economics. This was like 1950s home <laughs> economics classes where you walked in and they had the little kitchenettes and then they told you what the most efficient kitchenette was and it was usually a U-shaped one and not an L-shaped one and, and Martha Stewart hadn't come on the scene yet and so I was really bad at home economics. <laughs> um, but the first uh, semester was cooking. And I thought, well, I can't screw that up very much. Um, and the teacher's name was Mrs. Cook. And <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and she was, she was prim and she was crisp. And I remember all of the girls telling me the one thing that they knew about Mrs. Cook was that she had white carpet all over her house, <laughs> which is weird. Because if you're eighth grade, it's just weird. So, but that kind of gives you an image of, of who she was. And like I said, the only thing that I really had going for me was, was I knew I was smart and I could have that going. And for some reason, Mrs. Cook did not like me. She is not my mentor, but it's the setup. Um, she, and, and I, I never knew why. And there were just moments in the class where I would fail. I would, I would have a blueberry muffin recipe that I would have to make, and I didn't drain the blueberries, and so these muffins were like straight up blue. And she like showed it to the class, and she'd be like, oh, look at what Laura did. It's blue, you know, and, and like, and there was all of that. And then I remember like specifically one day, because it was like the kitchen was on one side and the sewing machines were on the other side. And so I had friends, I had one, one of my friends, she was in carpool with me, she was on the other side and she was in the sewing class. And this is totally gonna tell my age, but there was this weird commercial when I was a kid about Gina Tay perfume, where she like came home and threw it up in a bag and she had this gesture and I had a dish towel like in the kitchen and I looked at my friend Rachel across the way and I was doing, bringing it home in a bag and there was this like screech across the room. It was like, Laura Leidinger, how dare you? Women don't do that. Ladies do not do that. And I was like, okay. And, and, and everyone froze and they looked at me and I, I put the, the dish towel down and, and from that moment on, it wasn't just dislike, it's just, she just really had it out for me. And, and so I made it through cooking, and I thought, I can do this, and, and I did okay, but then we got to sewing. And sewing, I still don't sew. I cook like a beast, I don't sew. Um, but we had two things that we were supposed to do in home economics for sewing. The first one was making these pillows. And mine looked like somebody sat on a cupcake type of pillow, but I did it, it had a face, it was made of felt, it was fine. The second one, the second one was this shirt. You had to make a shirt. And you went into the, uh, it was like the first time I'd ever been to Joanne Fabrics. And it was the first time you ever walked around and you saw the models that were in the Butterick like, like catalogs and you, you walked around and I was, you know, I, I walked into, I remember this, I walked into this little like section of the store and it just said notions. And I was like, oh, I have a notion about this. And I was trying to make a joke and Mrs. Cook shut me down on that one too. She's like, shut up. She didn't say shut up, but she, she did say something. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but anyway, I, I was always behind all the other little girls 
in this, this class. And I struggled with the needle, I struggled with the sewing machine and the bobbins and making sure all of the little pieces got put together and, and every single part of this shirt, it was a blue pinstriped shirt, like a blouse that I had picked out and, and I thought it would make me look skinny and I was like super excited because it looked good on the Butterick catalog and I thought, okay, this will be fine. And every time, Every, all the other girls would get done with something, Mrs. Cook would like stop and be like, oh, well all you girls go on, we'll just have Laura catch up. And then I would go on and, and stuff like that. And so I did the whole shirt, the collar, the shirt sleeves, everything, and the hem. And the last thing that I had to do was to make buttonholes. And the only thing I had to do when I made the buttonhole was like take a swatch of fabric put it through the machine, and then um, make a couple of buttonholes, make it all done, and then I could go make the buttonholes in my shirt. So I went up to Mrs. Cook and I said, okay, here's the hem. And she looked at it and she was like, yes, it's fine, please, just go into your buttonholes. I was like, okay. And, and I'm eighth grade, I sweat all, no, I sweat all the time now, but I sweat more then. <laughs> and you just, you, everything gets in your head and you just have this panic thing. And I'm like, okay, I can do this right. And I grabbed a piece of fabric and I threw it down on the shirt, and I cut up the fabric. But I cut up the back of the, my shirt. I put the fabric on top of the shirt, and I just cut right up the back. And yeah. So I realized that, and I remember looking that I had just cut right up the back of this shirt, and I would have to go and tell Mrs. Cook that I had ruined my shirt. And it was, I think, my first existential terror. And I was frozen. And I was trying so hard not to cry, and I'm a leaker anyway. And I remember walking up to her with this shirt and just being, I did this. And she looked at it, and she looked at me, and she sighed, and she said, I cannot believe someone like you could be so stupid. And it sticks with you. And it, it's so weird because you're taught as a kid, don't call your brother stupid. If you call your mother stupid, you're going up to your room. Like, don't call someone stupid. And a teacher did it. And so I thought, that has to be true. And everyone knows it. And she's the only one that's going to tell me. And so it was like this weird, crazy swirl that was going. And, and so I just remember walking up out of class in this crazy fog and, and just so devastated to English class. And that was Mrs. Hoff. And she was a lovely lady, and I did well in her class. And I was lucky enough to be sitting in the back of her class and, and was still in this like red-faced kind of just trance of suck. And, and I remember being in the back of the class and trying so hard not to cry, but keeping my head down. And I remember Mrs. Hoff coming over and being like, hey, Laura, could you help me with something out in the hallway? And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah. And I, I went out, and I'm being cool. And she, she was like, listen, do you want to talk to me about something? You, you just, you seem upset. And I covered for Mrs. Cook. And I said, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just having a bad day. And for some reason, I didn't want anyone to know that I was stupid, I think. I've thought about that. And she let it go. And she was like, OK. She's like, well, we're going to do this thing next in class. And 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you, you know, with a couple things, but, you know, you just, you know, end up reading this and then, like, just give me a paper tomorrow, and I was like, okay. But here's the one thing that I remember about that moment is she cared enough, and, and I think it was your mentor, Elodie, I don't know if, if she's still here, who was talking about the mentor who gave her space, the one who just knows that someone's in trouble, knows that someone's in distress, but still is just there. And there's kind of a magic to that. And, and I think that's what was taught to me from that experience. And so what I try to do, and, and, and this is why it always comes back up to me and why I remember Mrs. Hoff, is, is that it's not just the first time you try to check in with someone to see if they're okay. And if they are pushing you away, it might be just because they're trying to work it through themselves. And if someone is in trouble, there are so many ways that you can help them without being so direct and, and getting to the point of it. And so I try to remember that. Um, and it's hard because sometimes you want that immediacy, even when you're trying to help someone. But anyway, Mrs. Hoff, was, she, was, she was cool. And I still am fascinated with white carpet and how that could happen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad that had a hoary end, good ending. That was like really going in a bad direction. Thank God for Mrs. Ha. Cool. Uh, Mary Beth, would you like to join us? <laughs> what would you like to do? Sit or stand? Um, I think I'll sit. Okay. I have notes on my cell phone. It's supposed to be unscripted, guys. Well, no, it's it's notes reminding oh, okay. me of names. Oh, good, good. I'm I'm a senior. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's my notes. Okay. I don't need this. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was born a long, long time ago. No, <laughs> I, I I'm from Southern Missouri. Um, in the Ozarks. My uh, father was one of eight, um, next to the youngest. I, uh, his two brothers were the eldest, and in the middle I had five aunts. Um, my aunts were all farmers, and I don't say farmers' wives because they were farmers. Um, they got up in the morning and worked in the fields at the same time that my uncles went out. Um, they worked and then they came in and they made breakfast for everybody that worked. They did the dishes and then they went back out in the field and worked again. Um, they came in and they made lunch and then they fed everyone and then they did the dishes and then they went back out to the field and they worked again. And they repeated that with dinner and then after dinner, when my uncles rested, and they did laundry, and they prepared for the food the next day. I start with that because I came from a world in which 
um, I was not never taught as a young person that there was a difference between what a male could do or what a female could do. That I grew up in an environment where everybody had a pl an important function to make things happen. And no one thought about it any differently because my uncles could not run their farms without my aunts. And um, I also learned my aunts being my first mentors. I learned what it's like to work really hard and remain positive while you do that. Um, when I started public school, I started to learn this is what a female can do and this is what a male can do, which became very confusing for me at that age because I had grown up, even, and my father, of course, being raised by women and things of that sort and only having a sister, treated my sister and I, we did whatever he needed us to do to help with anything that we, we did in the household. Um, so when it was time to go to college, um, all of my teachers were male in the theater program. Um, and all of the male teachers stated this is how a woman should behave. I was supposed to learn how to wear heels, which I still haven't, but, um, and behave a certain way, and these are the things that women should do, and these are the things that men should do. Um, I chose my grad school. Um, I interviewed for grad school with seven different men heading directing programs. I chose my grad school program because he was the only man that did not mention in the interview that I was female for no other reason than that, I mean, I was gonna get an education, but that was the reason why I made that choice. And it was a right choice because in the time that I was there with this man, he never brought up the fact that I was female. And he always pushed me to do the best that I can because of the person that I was, not that I was uh, in a male field, so to speak, at the time. So I moved to New York. Uh, after grad school. And mind you, this is a, a little girl that grew up on a farm in the Ozarks, okay? Um, I moved to New York probably with a lot of knowledge um, and maybe a lack of sophistication. Um, and every person I met about possibly directing was a male. Um, and so I wanted to be able to hang with the guys because that's the job that I wanted to do. And that was the persona that I started working with, was hanging with the guys. Um, I got invited to be a member of the Circle Rep Lab um, by a, a male, Michael Warren Powell, a, a lovely man, if any of you have ever met him. Um, and suddenly I started seeing this little woman run around. And she would stand with all the men and, um, but they all would turn and listen to her. And then I figured out she was the artistic director of this company and suddenly I'm seeing someone that's in charge and is a woman also, and a, a woman older than me, but, um, and I started watching her and I'd see her curl up on the couch with her arm around an actor in a play whispering in her, in her ear. I would see her grabbing a male director and pulling him across the room and talking to him. I would see her pack up her office 
at 6.30 p.m. where a young female director could come in and use her office to rehearse in, um, which was a really beautiful thing. And that was Tanya Berenson, if anyone knows Tanya Berenson. So Tanya Berenson became my first female mentor, which I never knew I was going to be able to even have a female mentor. Um, Maybe a year later, I was directing a piece at Circle Rep Lab. And after it was over, this tall, auburn-haired woman with high cheekbones, um, piercing eyes, um, came up to me and said with a slight southern drawl that she liked my work. Um, and she looked like my aunt's. She, uh, because I, uh, anyway, she looked like my aunts, and that was Julia Miles from the Women's Project. And at that point, when her Southern accent came out, my Ozarkian accent became thicker, <laughs> and her Southern accent became thicker. And I made her laugh, and when I made her laugh, I saw my aunts laughing. Um, and thus, this woman, took me under her wing and she provided me with experiences because I think she recognized in me part of herself because she came from farmers in Georgia and she knew what that was like. She, she said she had to get out. I never felt like I had to get out, but I felt like there was someplace else I needed to be. And so this is my list that I brought out. So Julia started providing me with experiences that, that uh, a, a little girl from the Ozarks would maybe never see. Um, she took me to see Julie Taymor as Titus and Andronicus. She took me to Mabu Mines to see one of their productions. And then she invited me the next day to lunch with her and Ruth Malachek. And I sat and listened to these two brilliant women um, talk, and not only talk, ask me questions, ask me what I saw, what I thought, what drew me into the piece that was there, where was I confused, basically being curious, but also in the meantime, making me curious about the work, not, I never felt like I was tested, but I felt like they were really curious about who I was and what I thought about what I saw. Um, Julie also took me with her to the Wooster Group, she took me to see Vanessa Redgrave in Orpheus Descending, which, has anybody in this room ever seen? It, off the chart, um, anyway, your knees would go weak. Um, so besi besides giving me these experiences and taking me places with her, of course she also gave me opportunities. And opportunities are a wonderful thing to happen. But what I've learned from this relationship and this relationship of somebody that I recognized and I believe somebody that recognized me and recognized who I was and what I feel I do today with students that I work with is I offer them experiences. If I see that there's something that they don't know or they don't understand or they don't have as a part of their life, I try to find an experience for them to be able to witness this or experience it. It's a part of my teaching and mentorship. Um, I asked a ton of questions. 
I ask my students to bring me questions because curiosity feeds us and feeds our work. And these women gave me that as a gift. So I probably never knew I needed a mentor. Um, but when I discovered a female mentor, I knew what was missing in my life. And I know I'm older than a lot of you, and a lot of you, and I, now I'll probably cry, a lot of you probably have an opportunity today to have female mentors, but when I came up, there weren't a lot of women doing things. And read about Julia, because she did so much for women in the theater and offered opportunities and experiences that we didn't get at that time. Okay? Thank you. Uh, Scott, do you want to come on down? I have notes too. So what I what I have to say, what Mary Beth said, that says it for me. Uh, so I when I was asked to do this, I said, what's a mentor? to myself, uh, and I don't know if I could define it clearly. You know, there are people, we're, in, we're in an incredible industry where we're meeting these incredibly creative people almost daily, and there are new people who pop up into our lives at certain moments in our lives, and if we're open to them, we'll get incredible stuff from them, and that's what, I, that's what theater's always been for me. I think that's why I gravitated to it, and that's what I get back from it. So I was trying to think of two people who I was open to at a certain moment that I could accept what they were gonna give. Uh, it's a little different way to look at it, um, and, uh, and it, it happened. I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, not Brooklyn, Nebraska. There is a Brooklyn, Nebraska. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and um, among four, uh, four million other wannabes, and the only thing I wanna be is out of Brooklyn. So I went, I, I, there were just too, I was a, a number in Brooklyn. I, there were too many students in every class. I was never given individual instruction. Uh, there were individual people I connected with, teachers I thought were terrific, but I was a kid in the back of the room. Um, and so I went away to a small college in upstate New York. It was the beginning of the state university system, and I went as far away from Brooklyn. I was near Rochester. And, um, but that was my sandbox. That became my high school. Um, I didn't really have mentors. There were teachers who were all young teachers um, creating, and um, I just opened every door at the university and played in that sandbox. Uh, and that's what I got out of it. I, at the end, I had too many credits and too many majors, because I was told, you don't go for theater. Uh, you have to get a job that pays. Um, so I d was in too many majors over too many semesters, and I went to the president of the university and said, I should graduate because I have enough credits. So he said, yeah, and I graduated. Uh, a graduate school was, we're gonna tear you down and then we'll build you up. They tore me down. And, but and, but what, what I learned was, if I could survive this, I could survive anything in, in theater. Um, and, uh, and so I did get something out of there, but I wouldn't say it was mentorship. 
But along the way around there, there were two people who I connected with within a few years of each other, not at a university. Um, one was at Monomoy Theater in Cape Cod, which was an extension of Ohio University at that time. I didn't go to Ohio. I knew the, the, um, the set designer was teaching in my college, and she said, he should go there. So I went, and uh, two years, and there was a woman there named Kathleen Stafford, who had been the voice coach of the Bristol Old Vic Theater School for 40 years. And this was at the end of that reign. Um, she said the only reason she came to work with us is she liked American ice cream. It's the only reason she came. She was a little woman, a very British, um, uh, eccentric, um, uh, she looked very frail, uh, but she ruled with an iron fist, which was literally true. Um, you had to lie on the floor and breathe, and she would put her fist down on your stomach, and you had to push it away, and she had an iron fist. That's what I remember. But uh, what was interesting was that she, she basically said, you have to learn as much about this craft as you can. Then you, can, you have to learn the rules. What are the rules? and learn them really well so you can break them, is what she said. She said, if you break them first, it's the end. Um, you'll never come back from there. So what I learned from her was discipline. Uh, the classes were every morning, six days a week, while we rehearsed other plays in the afternoon and performed other plays at night, eight shows in 10 weeks. She directed the Shakespeare, um, so we worked with her conscientiously every morning. If you were late to class, she would stop and stare at you until you sat down. And then she would say, Laurence Olivier was never late. <laughs> uh, and so it was the old school learning. But, but the detail she gave us, um, the encouragement, she would never take no for an answer. Uh, she would always think, you can do it. You can do it. Of course you can do it. Don't hold back. Just try. Doesn't matter if you make a mistake. It, it was just constant training in being trained. And it came kind of late for me. I was in early 20s at that time. But what I got, I remember a few things. I had to write them down. Of course, it was breath. Um, rib cage reserve breathing. Opera singers know that more. And now it's, it's oh, no, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. But it, when I did outdoor Shakespeare, it saved me. Um, I, I always had a reserve of breath. I had much more breath than I needed for any line I could be heard. Um, lift and point. I still hear that, and I still say it to the students. Lift the end of the line and point the next, but never do it with a British accent. <laughs> She said, America is closer to Shakespeare, the sound, Midlands, and you should honor your country and speak to your audience. And I got that from both of these people. Um, breath, diaphragmatic support, um, and that's about it. The second year, she believed in me enough to have me play Shylock. I was not ready to play Shylock, and she informed us that this is a Christian, com um, a Christian comedy, not a Jewish tragedy. Uh, so I took a deep breath and said, I'm going to get as much from her as I can get, uh, in spite of that. Um, and uh, uh, it was fascinating. And it was mainly because I needed her at that moment. I needed someone to say, this is, if you work at it, this is worth working at. There's so much you can gain. And if you stay open to it, you'll gain it all the time. Um, she just passed away a year after that. Um, but I'm, I was grateful. Then a uh, year after that, 
I was at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. I was there for two years as an actor. Um, all the others were from Yale and from Juilliard and NYU, and they were all going to play Hamlet. I was going to play Osric. I played Hamlet. They played Osric uh, in the final casting. And it's because Michael Finlayson was also British, a gentleman who was brought over by uh, Penn State to uh, teach in their program, but then uh, the, the, uh, um, the government wouldn't give him um, uh, a visa to work. So he spent the rest of his life going from university to university around. But he was at Utah for a, quite a long time. He was um, director of shows and then uh, took care of all of the dramaturgical stuff. I had never studied Hamlet. I read Hamlet. I never saw production. It was not in my, I was not going to be Hamlet. Uh, I was a character actor even as a young kid. I'm not going to play Hamlet. So I was playing Hamlet. We rehearsed three plays in, every day, morning one, afternoon one, evening one, four weeks, and then we opened them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, so when are we going to rehearse? Me and Hamlet. And so we rehearsed starting at midnight uh, in, in his room, no wine, like I have here. Uh, and it was, um, he coached me, not so much, and you have to say it this way, but why are you saying that? What does that mean? It was like leaves being folded open or an onion being sliced and cut and cut and cut. And it just went nonstop and there were no finite answers. He just wanted to feed me so that I would then be a conduit. I would trust my own instincts of what works for me and what doesn't. And, and so he, he really truly was a mentor. I, I was his chauffeur around the country as he was touring the United States um, to take him back to his houseboat in Long Island. Uh, and we remained friends for the rest of his life. And every time I did a Shakespeare play, we would be on the phone. And uh, once I did my research, we would talk it through every time I did a Shakespeare play uh, for the next 10 years until he passed away. And he passed away in a car with another young um, uh, actor. Uh, and they were telling stories back and forth, which he loved. And in the middle of a story, uh, he just went silent. And a guy looked over uh, in the car, and he, he had gone like that, smiling. Uh, so that was, a, that was a thrill. I saw him many times over the years. So it was a mentor I stayed with. And, uh, and we fed each other as friends. It really wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't just a mentorship. Uh, it was a friendship. But boy, I got so much from both of them. And, and then I do the same thing. I try to give it to the students. Is there's so many possibilities. Just open yourself up, and everything will be thrown at you. And whatever sticks, that's the stuff that's important. Um, so there we are, the mentorship. Okay, great. We have one more. Matthew, want to come on down? Returning player. Hi, guys. I'm Matt Bennett, from a writer from Salt Lake City. And I, too, want to take it back to K through 12. Laura, I want to send a long distance thank you to my 11th grade English teacher, Mr. Hansen. But to explain Mr. Hansen, I have to tell you how I got to Mr. Hansen. <laughs> so two years before that, Eisenhower Junior High, I was a C average student. And for English, I had 
Mr. Durfee, who was a tall, bald, bull of a man who broke up fights in the hallway. And he had no time for jokers, and especially no time for me. I muddled through his class until the final assignment. He gave us an essay. He asked us to write a one-page description, a literal description, of The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. And none of us were enthused about this, but I went home. <laughs> And I booted up my dad's IBM 1086 with DOS, and I booted up WordPerfect 5.1, and I stared into the blue screen like an anti-Doogie Hauser. And something happened. I, I looked at the painting, and my brain shut off, and my fingers danced. And I forgot the assignment. I forgot sentence structure. I forgot grammar. I nouned verbs. I verbed nouns. And I wrote phrases like hurricanes of light and the thirst of cedar trees. The critic just fell away for the first time in my life, and it was just me and my emotions in that moment and the keyboard. And when it got done, I had to ask myself, did I just enjoy English? <laughs> and I, the answer was yes. I was proud of it. I was proud of it. I didn't know what it was, but I was proud of it. And I, I took it to my friend Nick the next day, my friend Nick Verg, and we called him the Verg. I said, Verg, look at this. He looked at it, he said, wow, what is it? I said, I don't know, but I'm gonna hand it in. He said, it's not the assignment. But I gave it to him, I gave it to Mr. Durfee. He graded everything, and uh, the next day, maybe he, he passed everybody's assignments back out except for mine. And he said, Mr. Bennett, will you see me at my desk after class? And so I went up to his desk, class empty, I sat down, and he slid across this paper, and there was a big red F on it. And he said, I'm confused about how you were so confused about what the assignment was. And I, I remember, he said, I thought at first this was poetry, but it's not. And I defended myself, I said, this is my description of the painting. This is my description of my experience of the painting. But it was like arguing with a bull. He gave me one day to fix it. I took it home. And I came to the conclusion that I was an idiot, that I sucked, that I couldn't follow simple instructions. And I threw it away and deleted the file and I decided to hate English. And I did. 10th grade, C, 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 until, where's Scott? <laughs> Hamlet. Hamlet came along, 10th grade. And I actually read it, and <laughs> twice. 
and I rented the movie with Mel Gibson and I got through it. And I memorized parts of it for fun. And then the essay came along and it said again, describe using these 10 quotes that I've provided for you, how Hamlet's inaction led to his downfall, right? And so I threw away the instructions and I came up with my own thesis, probably a bad thesis that no production should be based on. <laughs> but it was my own and I was proud of it. And it came from my excitement for the play and I handed it in, and the same thing. Again, she said, see me after class, and she slid it across to me, and it said, C minus. <laughs> and Mrs. Baldwin, she would, the only, she would only write two things on all of our essays. It would either be redundant or be more concise in the marginalia. It was just like redundant, be more concise, redundant, be more concise. That's all she ever did. But on mine, um, there was nothing until the last page, and it said, I'm disappointed that you paid so little attention in class. And she gave me time to fix it. I didn't fix it. And she recommended me to remedial English for 11th grade. And that's how I met Mr. Hansen. So Mr. Hansen was the teacher of my 11th grade remedial English class. <laughs> and if I had one adjective to describe it, it was loud. It was, it was a loud <laughs> class. Um, it was full of like, the jocks who would beat me up at Eisenhower and their girlfriends and a couple kids with behavioral disorders and developmental delays in me in the back. and. Uh, drawing demon eyes. I was very good at drawing demon eyes around that time in my life. And I was shut down. But there was Mr. Hansen. And Mr. Hansen, he was not an impressive figure. He was a roly-poly, bespectacled, shabby man <laughs> who wore these extra, extra large golf shirts down to here. But he was a calm center who I mostly ignored for the first few weeks until he started talking about the transcendentalists in class. And I got excited. I perked up and I interrupted him. And I asked him a question in the middle of his lecture, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, it was something like, hey, isn't it a contradiction that these guys put so much stress on the nobility of the individual and also total universal interdependency? <laughs> and, he, and he stopped his lecture, and the class looked at me, and he said, see me after class. <laughs> And I thought like, oh no, like you did it again. But I went up to him after class and I said, yeah. And he just stood up and he walked over to the chalkboard and he drew a dot for the individual and he drew a circle for the totality of being. And he just talked to me for a half an hour 
about transcendentalism. <laughs> and I left after half an hour feeling capable. And I came back to that class the next day and I stopped muddling through and he asked me to read Huck Finn, big long passages to the class. He wouldn't let me sit in the back anymore. And then the final assignment, right, came along and he asked us to write a short story. Uh, a short story that was four pages long and it was supposed to be taken from a personal journal entry that we had written in class. And I went home, stared into the blue screen, and I threw away the instructions. <laughs> and I wrote a medieval romance <laughs> that climaxed in a duel between rival lovers. And I took a break, and I watched the Highlander TV series, and I took notes. <laughs> And I spent pages on the duel. And uh, it was, I remember the first line. I don't remember much about this, but I remember the very first sentence of the short story was Naples, period. And I was very proud of that. <laughs> and uh, it was 22 pages. I, I handed it in. He graded everything, and again, he didn't give me mine. He asked me to stay after class. And I sat down with him. He slid me my phone book-sized epic, and it had an A-plus on it. And he said to me, you're a writer. <laughs> I don't know how you wound up in this class, but it makes me mad. You're a writer. And the great thing about that moment was I believed him. And he tried to get me into AP English the next year, and it didn't work out. But the next year, on my own, I wrote a scene of dialogue, just a scene. And then I wrote a 10 minute play and then I wrote another one and then I wrote a short screenplay. And I started reading books about writing with no one telling me to. And I got to college and people asked me, like, what are you, what do you wanna do? And I said, I'm a writer. And they believed me <laughs> because Mr. Hansen told me and I believed him. So thank you. Mr. Hanson. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five.
Thank you, Five. Thank you, Five. That's the other guy.